Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? Good. You're in Manchester. I am in Manchester. I'm looking down on Piccadilly as we speak. Um, I've come up here to see my son and um, at university. And it's, that's one thing I love about him being at uni here is I love coming to Manchester. And last night we had dinner with a um, great friend and supporter of Rock on Tours, Johnny Marr, who had very lovely nice. things to say about it, which is very, very nice. So, yeah, all good here. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, you're, so you're Piccadilly Boulevardier, are you? Is, have I got the wrong Piccadilly? I don't know. It's just Piccadilly, isn't it? <laughs> the thing, I've got a late check. I'm staying in this hotel where I've managed to get a late checkout. And uh, I'm meant to be checking out at two, which is an hour after our interview starts. We do tend to go over an hour, so hopefully I'm not going to have chambermaids banging down the door. So if well, I do, what would have changed? It, all, it, all, <laughs> it turns from, from rock on turns into a Brian Ricks farce. <laughs> people, all, actually, funnily enough, there's some great stories about people having to bang down your hotel door, aren't there? There are, really. yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, including one where, where, where lovely Barry, who works with us now with Nick Mason, when working with Floyd, he actually had to take it, get off a screwdriver yeah, to it, take, take it off the hinges. Yeah, because I'd put the, put the chain across. I have no <laughs> idea. Were, I have no bed. idea what could have made me do that. Uh, and they had to hold a helicopter for me. Anyway, but never mind. Um, simpler times. Today, come on, come on. Francis Rossi, Francis Rossi. Quo! I mean, quo! Come on, I mean, quo! And they go on and on. He's going to be talking to us, I think, from an arena in Aberdeen where he's going to be going on stage tonight. You know, they're in the middle of a, of a UK arena tour, playing Wembley Arena um, next week, I think, or the weekend, or one of those. And it's extraordinary. I mean, since 1967, I think, their first record came out, didn't it? Something like that? I mean, uh, six, seven, or seven, six, they started in 1962. I mean, it's unbelievable. I've got a couple of facts here. 100 singles, 33 albums. You know, they've had 25 top 10 UK albums. Do you know what, Gary? Something I've noticed about the show is that you always have the stats. You are the Bill Frindle of rock on tours. <laughs> I just employ a team. No, <laughs> I, I am the Bill Frindle. But uh, I've got a lovely cake here. <laughs> There's <laughs> a number 73 bus going along St Johnswood Road behind me. Um, yeah, um, so, yes. But yeah, yeah, no. And look, but what's, uh, do you know the thing about, and I don't know if we, we mentioned it, what's incredible is for, for a true pure rock band, which they absolutely are, and that's how we knew them, how they managed to end up like inhabiting and dominating the pop space for years. It's true. You know, they own Radio you know, 1, they own Top of the Pops. It's true. Well, they've, they've, they've been on Top of the Pops more than any other single band. How many times, fact. Bill? <laughs> I've got my ledger here. Hang yes. on. Give me an hour. <laughs> oh, let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found 
Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hello, mate. How are you? Very well. Very well. Look at someone. Try to look at the camera. It's up there. Thanks for being on. Because you're right. You're yeah. so busy. You're right in the middle of an arena tour, aren't you? Yeah, I like the way you put the status quo thing in the camera. It's a lovely shot. Look, hey, this is I've got to get that. This is showbiz. He always he always does it for us. He's always got the record. You see, it's my original He's record. He's proper. Well, I mean, but you know, this meant so much to me. This yeah, really you did. You know what's interesting about that? It's called Pile Driver, and it's got a gorilla on the back holding a bomb. And I, yes, I said this to someone. The Pile Driver was a bomb, wasn't it? It was. Oh, bomb yes, it was yeah. Driver, yeah, but where the gorilla gets in? I'm... And a gorilla was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else I loved about this? The Vertigo label. That spiral. No, could you ever stare at it? I couldn't. After I've been smoking, I just it's all right. Stop smoking. I was only twelve though, from Oh you know? right, <laughs> But you know what? But Vertigo my... was good. Vertigo. I mean, you, you know, you you saw a Vertigo record. You know, you had a, a Vertigo label. You knew you had a proper rock record, right? Back well, then. Coliseum, Juicy Lucy. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Juicy Lucy. Worked with them a few times. It's weird because it was weird for Quo of that, you know, to be on that kind of, uh, that album is considered lots of groovy people. I think we were the beginning of the non-groovy people. You spandex boys, I remember... Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, not what? hearing it. What? Not, he- not hearing that. You were so groovy back then. What are you talking about? No, I never... You were so groovy. cool back then. Yes, you were. Only with the people that liked us, the rest of them, so who's those diggers? It's the same with every band, isn't it? I remember seeing the spandexes. We were out somewhere and you were travelling. You guys were all dressed and... <laughs> We're so bloody impressed that you look like a band and like uh, really oh. well um, presented. That so it made a, had a, a profound well, effect on me somewhere. I, I mean, I don't know what you you know. I can say the same about you. I mean, that whole denim look, you know, and that look there on the front of Pile Driver. I mean, that to me was such a strong image. This is a band going into battle. <laughs> well, that was no, you're looking at your like. feet. Ricky always thought about going in the battle. He called it the attack position. And Jill Solomon's always taking the piss out of me for saying that. He said that. And he always says it was me. Yeah, that image, that was funny, the denim image. At that time, it was really quite wild to wear denim. You couldn't go to work in denim. You couldn't go to the cinema. You That's right. Go to a you couldn't get in anywhere. No, you couldn't no. get in anywhere. No. And there was a deal done, I believe. And Rick and I were doing some promo at some point, some years later. And there was these posters around of, of Levi with us three on it, you know, and we were given a roll of denim each. So then we suddenly, realized, <laughs> we suddenly realized one day, wait a minute, on telly we were, and it's, wait a minute, someone got paid for that, didn't they? Yeah, it's only up to yeah. learn this stuff. Exactly. But this is pre-David Beckham days. No one knew about sponsorship, right, in those days. No, I suppose you're right. Roger Daltrey did kickers. That's the only other thing I can think of. I remember I went out and bought a pair in the King's Road because he wore them. I thought they were great at the time. No, but no, I remember no, Queen were... as well had Adidas shoes. That was their thing. And I remember being backstage with Queen and they were saying, yeah, this is fantastic. We get sent free shoes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no it money. It's something, isn't it? It's something nothing. It's incredible, yeah. Yeah, listen, yeah, thank you so much for, also, for doing this because you're yeah, in the middle yeah. of, 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 of this tour. You're, you're in Aberdeen tonight. But listen, I just want to say, because everyone, we re- obviously this is being recorded on uh, Friday and England are playing tonight. You're in Scotland. It, so it doesn't matter, right? But you're not going to show it on any screen, are you? No, uh, we were somewhere the other night in, uh, in Tilburg in Holland. There was a, an England game on the afternoon the guys watched and... Then just before, not long before we went, there was a Dutch match, and I believe they won, so we're kind of safe. Every time there's a World Cup, you must have affected yourself. They have a gig on, and if it's us, England, and the band goes on depressed, or if it's the people of the, the country you're playing and they lose, really messes the gig. So luckily we weren't affected too much that night. Are you a football man? Not madly, no. I like watching England play, and I think we also have a terrible... Some of the crew guys straight away started that sort of, wow, you know, we're going to lose. And I'm sure our teams have known that historically, that generally 
people start talking negatively about them, whereas in most other countries, they swear blind their, their team is just going to win. And I'm sure some of that in the, in, in the team's mind, they're aware out there, the slightest mistake they make, that all these other much better footballers watching from home know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> if it, it's the same with us fans, I'd be out of a job. I always thought the, the, like the saddest, most defeatist World Cup thing ever was when the Scotland official record was don't come home too soon. It's funny, we were playing that recently because I like Delamitry. I call him Delamitry, not Delamitry. Del- <laughs> and, um, just, I'm just going to Delamitry. Yeah, and they, they made some great records. But again, that it comes across as a negative. That was a great little tune as well. But I can see what you mean. You're all well, yeah, like, yeah, you don't to, want to hear it from the terraces, do you? Yeah, no, I agree. But you're expecting <laughs> to lose. That's kind of weird. You're right, yeah. You haven't stopped. I mean, you, you've literally been this kind of snowplow rolling through rock and roll from the 60s through the 70s. It was like ignore punk, whatever that is. We'll just keep going, you know, and it's not stopped. You're here today playing this arena. But I just I know it's been a while since um, since Rick died. But does it feel like he's still on stage with you? No, that'd be a great rock and roll sort of showbiz thing to say. But you know, the, one of the best and worst things about rock and roll is that someone dies and they, you just you're out on the road the following night. And we have with the who we have with the stunts and various acts. It's kind of mean like that. But that old adage that the show must go on, it really does, doesn't it? If we were doing a show once, and Jeff Rich, the, uh, the drummer we had, then lovely little fellow. And we were, we were doing this so-called comeback, doing Nebworth with Queen, and we had three shows that day. Management did well. And um, he must have had some gastro job, shall we call it. And we were just feeling Roadhouse Blues, and he sort of started to fall off the kit like that. And as I said, just poke him up. So they propped him up and held him, so he played the last few bars of the gig, you know, and he went on to the next two gigs after it. So it is... Uh, it, I do dream about Rick a lot. Sometimes it's really really positive and it's when we were young and yeah. basically we were kind of in love was over the top really people would get most upset with us two holding hands and us trying to trying to camp it up somewhat and uh, and then there are times when it's it's kind of negative there was a dream about two or three nights ago and i'd been asked to do a song for some south american movie <laughs> and i'm trying to learn this song and he came out, he said i think i should sing this one don't you what? And it's just so weird things come up. And when he when he first died, we would all dream. And one of the he came up and turned up in the gig and walked in. Where you do? Where you go? I thought you were deaf. He said, "Yes, so did I." And it was so believable with Rick that he he always bounced back. You know, we said, "How are we going to tell Richard that you're still a?" We'll have to do something. He said, "We'll have to tell him because I'm here." And that was in the dream. It doesn't even seem ridiculous. So it's Rick, of course. But um, Richie does such a fantastic job and is so much like Ricky in many ways. A couple of ways I can't say, but he's very much like Rick in his way and he modelled himself on, on Rick and I, but mainly Rick. So yeah. I'm saying this at catering this morning and uh, how, if you'd seen that in a movie, that this kid comes along, that he's been his idol all his life and steps into the job, it's movie material, which you say, not true, but it is with him. So... In some respects, Rick's dude, he sounds like Rick a lot, so I don't know. Sorry, little aside, you just said in catering this morning. Yeah. You're not setting the gig up, are you, Francis? I did that yesterday. I came in yesterday. I was in this dressing room yesterday. <laughs> yeah, well, I tend to travel with the, with the and, and Irene very early in the morning. And um, How do you travel? I, I travel on a bus. I can't not. I travel on a bus. I've travelled on a bus for many, many years. Do you do overnighters still? Oh, yeah, I don't want to... When the, the lady that you saw just now, when she first joined, we would get a bus on a day off, get up, get on the bus, travel, and so she said, you're losing a day off. So that was about 25 years ago, and that's when we started travelling overnight. So you're already there. And I enjoyed oh, no, no. the idea of travelling. When I was younger, there were lots of... Um, so these movies about travelling circuses, how they would all move together as a family, like this lot does, and you would, people would go to town and sell tickets to try and sell, and then they'd move on a week later. And I think that's... The film would spin around and variety yeah, yeah. would come Yeah, yeah. And... Newspa- newspaper front pages. That's it, yeah, you've got it. So you saw it, you are old. And, and, and a line going through a map. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we do, isn't it? And I think that's part of the yeah. thing I really love about it, but... 
we, we last night it was very windy and I'm lying in the bus seat. This is heaven. And I don't, I don't go anywhere else. I just, and I'm know- on at the beginning, I get off at the end. Francis, you know, because, you know, we're in this band with Nick Mason we've, and we've just been on tour for months. And this band, first, I've worked with Nick for 34, and this is the first time Nick has ever been on a bus, ever overnighted on a bus. You know, well, he's used to doing Floyd, Floyd private it. planes. He loves it. He yeah, loves I can't, I couldn't do that either. The idea of getting up, the morning, getting to an airport is your what? No, exactly. It's horrible. It's horrible. I'm already at the venue, so I wake up, go into catering yeah. and lovely... Because you've got a great caterers with this, but yeah, I do. I've gotten used to a thing, and I like a routine. Whenever it's the I, sorry, I struggled a yeah. bit this morning because I had to do this with you, and I, as I had to, I do this with you, and I did something beforehand, which meant I got up half an hour early. I normally get up nine thirty. I got half an hour earlier, so I could do my juice, do my walk, get in the catering, get the shower, get the shave. Sweep the hair, both. Do your juice. God, yeah. times have changed. Because I must say, Francis, you're very, very nicely turned out. You do look good. Well, that's the mod. That's why I touched some of the things yeah. coming back to me. You guys, Spandex, I said, saw you in some place. And I thought, yeah, I like that. And Bowie. And we used to dress. And um, Charlie, uh, Charlie Watts, we used to oh, yeah. dress. I like yeah. to dress for... I just like yeah. a lot of the winds are freaking. Well, talking, at, you look beautiful, mate. You I really do, them. handsome. Talking about mods and all that. Let's spin that that like camera around and go back a little bit to the sixties, nah. if you don't mind. And you starting out as a as a kid getting into music. I mean, cause, yeah, I mean, you were in the Scorpions in nineteen sixty two. I mean, you seventeen, eighteen, or something. In 1962. No, before you were at school, weren't you? Yeah, we did our first gig when I was, me and Alan Lancaster were about 13 in October 1962. When you document this stuff, it sounds like, well, no, we were were a bunch of kids almost playing. We were doing all sorts of covers and um, uh, searches stuff and whatever was in the chart. And we were quite proud if we did things that were four or five years old, which when you're younger, seems bloody old. And um, but we were really, really lucky that the very first gig we did, a guy came up. So, oh, manager, it's a big pun. Oh, manager, and it was our manager, <laughs> and we were very, very lucky that we had someone fighting for us from that age onwards. And um, that was the whole mod thing. Alan Lancaster and I hanging around in Peckham. It was the winds are not even then, and this and this shirt and the. What music were you dancing to? What were you into? What was that young man? What was that other word you used? Dance. Is that a euphemism for something else? Um, I never danced. I danced when I was about 11 with Margaret Pierce, these girls that live next door. And it seems that as soon as I'd been on and done a gig, something happened. I thought, I can't do that anymore. And I still can't. I to die. I went to my daughter's wedding, my eldest daughter's wedding, a few years ago. I said, oh, Carl, as long as you don't want me to dance. And it was a deal we did together. I can't, I don't know what it is. Self-aware. He's a dickhead, really, getting away with life. I'm just still a dickhead getting away with it. Well, from yeah. on with. But what, what music were you into, though? Oddly enough, I, I, we had Luxembourg. I had Luxembourg and various things. But I was all pop, I think, pop record. I was brought up with Italian opera and such. But it was whatever was in the chart, whatever I saw on top of the pops or uh, Ready, Steady, Go, or I think uh, the, the, what's the name, the American one was, Oh Boy was still on. So whatever was around. And um, I was fascinated when I see documentaries on, on Clapton and, and, and meeting um, Steve Marriott years ago. They always just mentions of obscure black people that I'd never heard of. Anything I learned, if I learned any about blues, came from white men. Uh, from other black guys from Robert Johnson and whomever else so That's, you've said this before Francis and there's a fantastic irony in this in that you were the guys who actually ended up having the real success with the R&B stuff yeah whereas, in fact, whereas yeah, you weren't the guys who sat there salivating over catalogue numbers of blues yeah but haven't they changed what R&B is now yeah yeah it's yeah it's R&B, the R&B is, from, yeah. yeah, rhythm and blues from back then, yeah. And it was, but, yeah. and, uh, put on your red dress, yeah. all that, that kind of thing, ding, 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 fascinates me and still does. Uh, but generally it's pop music. And it used to be a terrible thing to say you like pop music. But I've liked, you know, the biggest stuff you know, you could see the Eagles as a pop band or Fleetwood. So I used to tour with Fleetwood Mac a lot, the early bluesy to Fleetwood and Chicken Shack. And, um, we just ended up copying everybody else's, and this lovely array of stuff you've got on that table there. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 
Oh, those pedals. Yeah. Lots of pedals. I love yeah. a pedal and try not to use them. He spent hours dressing his room. And <laughs> <laughs> so business. But, but, but this... So I'm in a hotel. Kid. There's nothing I can do. Yeah, he's in Manchester other than, hotel. Other than smash it up. Well, yeah, that's a bit passe, lovey. It really... Well, it is. He's yeah. visiting his son at university. Yes. Oh, so now that's real. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just you and Alan at the beginning, isn't it? Because Rick's not involved at the... Uh, uh, yeah, Alan and I from then, and we met John Coglan very early on. He was at the ATC in Lordship Lane, and we were rehearsing there. Or rehearsing there, you're practising. And uh, he came interested in that ATC uniform with the big boots and belted hell out of the snare drum that this drummer we had. And then straight away we said, do you want the job? And he came within a few days to rehearsals in Dartmouth Road in Forest Hill. Because you've been playing without a drummer up to that. Sorry. No, we had a guy called Barry. It was weird because we should have sussed it that the, the, the first Tom Rack Tom that he had was a sort of a tambourine overly tight. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and uh, but John Coglin could really play drums. He was he was the old school that played this way round. learned from the military, and all the best yeah. drummers learned that we all now played like so. But real drummers will play like that. So no, on your on your on those that that first album on all the kind of Matchstick Men period stuff. There's some really tricksy drumming. Yeah, like really kind the, of ahead of yeah. his time. Yeah. Well, that was the early integration, which the the. Um, the two brothers, what they call Oasis, they brought that kind of gentle da 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 And that, to me, I thought would never come back again. We had the first album, Picturesque, Matchstickable Messages, and another Thanks for that. And another one called And so you guys know how is you just get in there and you try doing... Once we had our first hit, it was just hanging on, because... The idea of failure to me is just doesn't. Well, you haven't had it. All right. So you're all right. Talk, talking of your first hit, right? One Sorry. nerdy music question because there's because there's another song. Was it Black Veils of Melancholy? Yeah, yeah. Right? It was a very very similar song, and it has that same sort of guitar. How you're do you, what what is that guitar sound? You're being kind. It's not that tricky. Then when I, people used to come up and ask me that, I just have. So you put the top E string down to the B. Soon it's slightly sharp, so you get the uh, the oscillation between the two strings. And then when you double track it, it's all going. I think on Black Fowls and then the other. Da, 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 Fabulous writer. Even they did it all day and the dollar of the night, and you really got me in subsequent yeah. tunes. But it's funny how we, everyone seemed to do that, and was, I think that that epitomises it. The idea it's just going to hang on to success because That's the right. worst thing in our business is to be a one-hit wonder. Sorry, any one-hit wonders. It's but, <laughs> but talking <laughs> about success, Francis. What's extraordinary? Your first single, "Pictures of Matchstick Man," it's top ten in America, yeah, right? yeah. and you don't go. Yeah, there was there were lots of mistakes made. I mentioned this to our agent the other other month that I was talking about. You just suddenly realised. I read we were going in the NME. I thought, really, I didn't know that. And um, again, that's part of the whole thing that you do. Obviously, you get a line in the NME. They say that you're going to tour. Well, when we did tour, we were that impressed with the American accent. Rick and I in Los Angeles, and and on Sunset the Brown. Travel Lodge. They seemed heavenly to us. But the phone rang and we were like, oh, this and that. It was straight off the TV. So yeah. but we found the American thing very intimidating. There were some fabulous bands that could really play. And that play the house off you, you know. You must have met them in and you go into certain states that you cannot believe the quality of the musicianship. Mm-hmm. And we were losing a lot of money there. And I think we took a view, again, that should you get so far in your career and say you threw all that away chasing the American dollar. And that's what it looked like we were doing. Subsequently, you realise you could have gone to a stage of drawing three to 5,000 and be out of tour forever there. So it was fundamentally a mistake, but you made them. 
It was it was real psychedelic that record that opening album was this was psychedelia in the air? Do you feel like you helped him? It was some of that. After, but you had it. You, but you literally had everything on it. You had the wah wah. You had everything. I mean, it was like you, yeah, well, you were just copying. You went you went on all the rides. Yeah. It was. <laughs> we were copying you at the end of a decade. Luckily, we went across the decade and then re-emerged, or as Madonna said, reinvented ourselves. But I find that uh, most acts must realise that if you last a while, once you transcend a certain decade, you become yesterday's news, however. And if you can hang on, and that's what we were trying to do forever and ever, and still am, rather, just trying to hang on. This you, must, you, you must have realised, because uh, when I bought Pile Driver and everyone was getting into Paper Plane, etc., I then went back and bought Pitches at mash, Matchstick Men and... and that was there a sudden sort of like resurgence of that old stuff? Yeah, to a degree. There was some pie stuff released and with like Mean Girl and such were released. But the, the difference between Pile Driver or Dog of Two Ed and Mark Kelly and Pile Driver was so great that yeah. picturesque matchstickable message people must have gone back and said, No, it's the wrong one, mate. You're giving me the wrong record. It's just not <laughs> because we were copying stuff there. We were copying what was going on. Of that. Out of all of those, my favourite is Mark Kelly's. I think it's a fantastic album. It does have something about it. We were rejecting all forms of recording technique and no tracking of the vocal, no tracking of guitars, as few takes as possible, which is not the way to make records, really. If you can get that in one or two passes, there is something that happens. Well, we all know that. If you get two passes, then there's, even though it's rough and there are mistakes, there's something going on. Subsequently, if you get to 30 or 40 takes, not only have you ironed out the mistakes, you've ironed out any vibe to it. And it gets So there's always a jolly clairvoyant which way to go, I think. Something I'd never noticed before, but listening to that last couple of days, I was getting quite strong Stephen Stills vibes from your voice. I don't know well, if that said that to me once. Roger Glover, we were making what well, so Oh, there you go. I, I was thinking uh, off then. It's probably giving it must be something to do with it. Whenever it was before all that, he would get a C414 microphone. We keep on to drop out any of the lower meter stuff. And I can't even hang that anyway. And the more, once it made that, I remember saying to Pitt Williams, Does it sound like him yet? And he said, We're getting there. And it would sound. <laughs> It sound like again. So that's making the same record over again. So the criticisms about us making the same record over again for years is probably true. Yeah, but that's interesting. Was there a moment that you remember when you think that's actually me now? I sound like Francis Rossi, and I'm going to. Yeah, well, like that's why I would say to Pepe, "Do I sound like him yet?" Because yeah. once they got the you got the second track, and I got very good at double tracking to a point where it would phase, which was no good. You needed it to the, the slight out of tuneness going, which makes it commercial. And which is what, when a lot of the ABBA records were done, they would do the second track slow. It started to go as far came back a little bit more zingy. And uh, that's recording technique and anything to make, uh, I said, anything to hang on some form of success. Can't, um, vacuous, fucker, yes. You've hung on. Yes. It's all right. I, I'd say, you know, cut, you can clip your nails now. I've got yeah, no yeah. fucking nails. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, uh, I remember that you, there's a there's a bit in your documentary we watched the other day where you all go down to Carnaby Street and, and get mm. kitted oh, out. Oh, that's a lovely story. But I mean, how was that? That's what you did. There was a guy on top of the pops, if anybody sees old top of the pops, if it's still in colour. There was this guy, they said, had the shock of red hair. They were very delicate with it. And he was... It was Carnaby Cab Colin of Carnaby Cabin. You saw him there because he was the and there was the one shopping in Carnaby Street that you went to. So asked Jimi Hendrix, the grapefruit, I'm in corner, everybody. And you'd go to a smudge shit, a photograph session, and the bloke would say, uh, can you change your shirt? I did that one with Jimmy, yes, don't change your shirt. And can you do that shirt? Because so and so and everybody bought the same clothes. So we were rejecting a lot of that dressing by going, we'd just turn up in your jeans and go on. And Rick and I had to wear a pair of pumps at the time. We were wild. We had coloured laces. We, we, yeah, we knew where we were going. That's ahead of your time because that's actually very eighties hip hop. Everything, anyway. everything goes around us. Yeah, yeah. So where was that denim thing coming from? I suppose there was, you know, this is a. I guess I'm thinking West Coast America. You know that it's it's suddenly you know Laurel Canyon look. They're, those bands were becoming... And, and scruffiness, because I suppose That's... Being, being smart, like the mod thing, and smart, and you dress, you, well, you must remember, it's still Captain to you guys, you couldn't go on television dressed like a mess, so you couldn't go 
So you're going on television. Jeff Rich, when he was in the band, would put fresh underpants on each night because his mother said, when you do a gig, you put clean pants on, son. So he put clean underpants on. So that went on. So the idea that uh, we could go on stage and we did um, the castle in Tooting. Did you ever do that? And we were supporting Meet the Hoople, Mott the Hoople. One of those. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mott the Hoople. Him, them. We expected someone to come along and say, you can't wear that because the Gene Pitney tour that we did, they used to do your makeup check, that pan stick stuff. And if you weren't dressed properly, they'd send you back to the dressing room to dress properly. Wow. And so the idea that you could walk on stage in a pair of jeans, an old T-shirt, and they were getting holes in the knees was kind of wild. It was yeah. just, look at you, wild, because, you know, yeah. now, now you buy them with holes. That's, that's life. And but it, it was also the sign of youth, because no one above the, the age of 20-something would ever wear jeans. My dad used to get up, ironically, you're in a nice tie now. My dad used to was a printer in a factory, but he'd I get do. up at 6 yeah. o'clock in the morning and put his tie on, you know, to go to work. Yeah, I just, I can't help it. I mean, whether it's I saw lots of that growing up, because... I actually look at me and go, I like the way you look. Then I, and then I look at the face. But you know what I mean? The idea of dressing and have, I don't know. I can't help it. I, I, they're talking about clean underpants. You've become I, Brian Ferry in your old age, haven't you? My mum Any of that. Or spandals. <laughs> Come on, the spandals yeah, yeah, dressed. Yeah. I'm saying it again. They look magnificent. Thank and you me. had the three-quarter jackets. I was really envious of that. Uh, I am um, talking about clean underpants. My mum would always say, your underpants, <laughs> clean. If we must. No, she used to say, make... Get your clean underpants on because you might get run over. Yes. That's right. They have an accident. That's yes. As soon as he's got run over, look at his pants. Oh, no, this one's not going. Ian changed his pants before he came out. His mother should have told him what kind of a parent was she. Yeah, like the most awful thing about getting run over by a bus is being found with dirty pants. Well, I suppose... Uh, when being you... run over by a bus. Yeah, but it's a bit, you might get <laughs> yourself anywhere and run over by a bus. <laughs> But I wonder how what kind of state underwear you used to be in. You think, oh, I don't want to go there. My mum had lots of symbols for what made you look wealthy. The other one was because like, I, mean, I remember when I bought my first flat and, and I had wooden shutters on the windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did. And she came around and she went, you've got to put neck curtains up. People think you're poverty stricken. Yes, what is that? That was the time my mother had that. And you could always see him in bits. She's looking through her. Uh, she's doing it. <laughs> and then they go that orangey brown colour. You think she needs to wash her yeah. fucking nets. Look. Well, you, can't, you can't really pry with shutters, can you? You can't have a sneaky look, can you? you yeah, but they make them now, don't they? So you can just sort of freak them a bit, yeah. yeah. What it is, you see, if, you've, if, you're, if you're wealthy, obviously, people can look through and can see your bookshelves and your nice furniture, but I don't think we had anything much nice there to look at. There was nothing to look at. No, there wasn't. You're right. I think it's more about looking out than looking in. Actually, funny... Uh, anyway, funny, never mind. Just one other connection, because you, you did speak about once, about... I can't remember. It could even have been pictures of matchstick men. You wrote on the bog. Because yeah, the bog was, was outside and it was In crazy. a prefab, yeah. How, uh, the ultimate expression of post-war living. Prefab. Yeah, well, I lived with well, my... My school friends lived in prefab. Yeah, my first wife and her mother they, and, uh, and her sister lived in there. And uh, they'd gone out shopping. I mean, I'd only been married a little while. I'd gone out shopping with my young son. He was like, yes, I'd gone out. And I started playing the guitar, which was the uh, Gibson stereo, so I'm not telecasters. And they came back, so I went in the loo, and I, you kind of sat like that because they're very narrow, I think, and finished off by writing back. Bill Wyman. Is that where Bill Wyman yeah. yeah. So I kind of finished it off in the loo there. I, I now think about that place it must have been so bloody cold. We must have been so tough then. We were just freezing. We had an outside loo and it would freeze over so you couldn't <gasps> flush it. You know, and the I wonderful mean, string through the chair, the, the yeah, paper, the um, yeah. newspaper cutting sheets. I didn't write a song in it though. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One of the things you talk about is um, is seeing the doors and 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 that, that oh, yeah, Roadhouse Blues. Did you, in road, oh, it's funny. I heard road. this yesterday on a cast with John Connor. I don't remember seeing the doors, unless I don't join, but I don't remember. I think you just heard it. <laughs> oh, you heard it. Sorry, Rick, sorry. Yeah. Rick and I were in a place in Bielefeld called. Uh, we used to go back and stay in Bielefeld and work out of Bielefeld. And we came into this club one night. We used to come back and have a goulash soup. And uh, we watched this couple dance to We subtly did a version which was quite good, a little too. Roadhouse Blues. You know, First time I ever heard it was you. Yeah. On this Road album, Road. on Power Driver, right? It, on it was Road. magic. But I still yeah. find it weird that um, he's revered that man when he used to get his tags out on stage and start playing with the thing. I'm thinking, why is he so sacred? But it's this thing that he came to see us in Los Angeles. And. Um, he said, well, the time I asked him what he thinks, they should turn it down and go home. Which oh, no. was quite funny, I thought. And he goes, yeah. Jim Morrison. Yeah, Jim Morrison said that. But I'm well, well, also, bear in mind, this helps, you know, that Dave Davis told us the other week, and, and it's humble when you listen to it, it's so true that Hello, I Love You is a complete and utter rip of All of the Day and All of the Night. Yeah, but that swings. There's obviously that record has a swing to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shuffle, yeah, yeah, shuffle, 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 shuffle. Thank you, sorry. Um, and that became a kind of signature for you. Was that the that that sort of shuffle sound? Well, I was fascinated quite. with the blues shuffle. I heard John Cogner talking about it again last night because he, he he's left-handed but plays right-handed kit, so he could sh- do the shuffle with this hand. And with this hand, and still put the the offbeat in it to that. And we would work with Chicken Shack and Fleetwood Mac in the old days rather a lot. And you could, you know, you could sit on the side of the stage and watch them then, even if the punter could see you. And they would start their set, some blues thing like that. And 40 minutes, 15 minutes later, they were still going. Dun, dun, dun. We thought, what a great kick that must be. I didn't think I'd have to learn to play the frigging guitar in between. But the idea of sitting there and shuffling all night long and uh, love shuffles. But then I've subsequently realised there are so many kinds of shuffles, even in... Um, I did a talk show, and one of the things I remember as a kid was this track called Papa Piccolino, which is jingy, jingy, jing, so it's all over Italy, they know it's concertina, Papa Piccolino. Oh, and so there's a really poppy shuffle, there's a bluesy shuffle, there's a real raunchy shuffle. So much of our lives in music are around shuffles. And it's yeah. a real test of a drummer, isn't it? There's, there's, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, Jeff Beccaro was revered for his Yeah, Ash Stone is a t- sort of top shuffle man now, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah I think it's, you it's trust really, me, you know the man, see? Yeah, Typical yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but it became a sound that you that I caught, sort of caught on, you know. There was a, I remember there was a time when I used to go to see pub rock gigs with bands. And you couldn't go anywhere without hearing people do that shuffle sound. Yeah, it's weird. But that is John Cogner was the pretty much the master of the shuffle because uh, I watched something last night, I said of his, that um, I didn't realise he was actually left-handed. And he made the point. So he could do it with either hand. Well, generally, if you tr- you play kit, you try playing kit, to, to yeah. try and get the that, to do that, and get this, the that, your left, that, and a four on the foot is extremely difficult. Cogman was the master of it and probably still is. Yeah, but there's a lot of drummers who actually just blag it, don't they? Because you can just go... You can, or you can put the butt on the floor, but that's it, still... And do you write with that in your head still? It's like thinking, I've got to write a quote song. Yeah, I'm strumming usually. So, and you make a decision, or we... Lily the Pink, almost then. That, that popped pink. into my head as well. What was it? What? I, Lily, Lily the Pink. <laughs> yes, there was a shove of Lily Pink. <laughs> but you are, there's a point where you decide at some point where, where you were going to so-called crop it up and downbeat the show. Or Margarita's a shuffle. Or Wanderer. They're all forms of shuffle. So yes. I shouldn't yes. be giving this... Talking about Wanderer, 
There was there's a famous Roddy Barker, the two Roddies. Yes. Oh yes. That is so good. That did a song so that was meant to be you, was it? I think Roddy, Roddy Barker played you, didn't I'm f- he? Yeah, I know. I'm fond of that. Uh, I'm very fond of that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, what an honour to have the two Roddies playing you. You know, I just thought it's magic because there was little Ricky and me as this fat geezer. I'm thinking, well, sorry. And the way they actually looked like why we looked at each other and smiled all the time. I mean, it was, it was, I thought ironic that it was that good. That good, I loved it. Yeah. One thing I love that's the complete opposite of what you would think is that whole this what you talk about the attack position, that whole head down, no, Nancy, no, we're gonna rock thing. Yeah. Where that actually came from is the complete opposite. It was from you playing to a load of to the fact that your audiences were kind of stoned hippies who just sat on the floor with them. And a lot of times we walk on and they turn their backs. We did a lot of stuff with Tyler and Soros Rex before they were T Rex and various other acts. And when you were subhorting, because Quo had come from this pop thing, how dare they? They would literally turn their backs on us. So we would just look at each other. And, and your head would go down. You start with Junior's waiting. And the head would come down like that. And it just became an image. And you, I suppose everybody realises that if you see something that's taking, you exploit the thing. Yeah. So the idea that... I actually had my hair, you like this, I had my hair streaked in town. I wanted silver streaks. I loved silver streaks in the hair. But Dickhead didn't realise they'd have to bleach it first. So I had highlights at 21 or something silly. (laughs) And that's that cover. And that was us just blanking the audience, just just doing our thing. That's you, of course, that's you in the middle of Pole Driver, isn't it? Blonde hair. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can be mean, young man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> was there a song then was that a sound then on pile driver you think this is it we don't sound like any other band we are yeah there was but it also is that you know is that there's a certain shame in it our records are always narrow band kind of because the whole thing of satan's club is two rhythm guitars i wasn't really didn't want to be a lead guitar player it had to happen i had to try and learn and so it was which sounds so good by the way on record it's so good and it makes you think all those bands with one guitar makes you think why there's always a hole. Yeah, there's always a hole. And the bass guitar, because poor Alan was a short ass and he was a little fellow, he um he got a short scale. Um, That's right. He always played short scales, didn't he? Right. So the short scale and then the timbre of the thing was there. So there was this narrow band of sound. It was quite unique. But whenever we heard a record uh, and something before or after ours, it always sounds so broad in terms of the sound as opposed to these tiny crow ones, other than when we did Down Down. And people kept asking me how we got so much bass on the record, so I've got no bloody idea. It just kind of happened, you know, got no idea how it happened. Yeah. You, can't get, you, you can't get by with just passing, pass, passing by saying, oh, when we had Tyrannosaurus Rex with us. I mean, you know, Mark has been, was, was, the time I was buying Pile Driver, I was also he obsessed was with Mark. He was a lovely man, I liked him a lot. But I, with, I, maybe it's not very good for me to say this, but I think one of the worst things, best things, if you see clips of him there, you, the old top of the pots, and I think when you guys were still, we would, you'd, you see someone looking up, they're looking at the monitors that are in there, and you could see Mark going, oh, God, he began to, and he wasn't like that before. He began to go into the, oh, look at me routine. And I think it's... Yeah, I think they were it's, sitting it's on the floor with Tyrannosaurus Rex, weren't they? they were yeah, when he was doing that, uh, him and Tuff, Steve Perrigan, Tuff, oh, I believe his name is. Uh, they yeah. would just, and he would talk very healthy to the audience about paying the god of music and stuff. Perhaps he'll come. But he tore the places up everywhere he went. He was excellent. I loved him to death. He was an excellent guy. And, and, I, and I did read that Deb, um, Down Down had some, in, was Deborah? influence down down is that true? yeah well because when bob and i had got to it we're going again 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 oh we got to the next verse and we kept getting to it i said to bob we need something like deb deb and he said what about down down oh don't be stupid bob how can we go down down what down down so down down it was because to me writing is great because we're not that kind of writer with deep meaning for obviously it's just the sound that it makes when you, you know, when you're writing. There's a sound it makes. Yeah, because Deborah uh, starts off with. I want to get the next line, right? Yeah. The next line. When you think, I need that. It needs to sound right before the meaning. If I get a meaning too, yes. 
but it's sound, I think. Because uh, you're right. You sit there writing sometimes, just singing gibberish. I mean, it's yes, you know, yes. famously Paul saying scrambled eggs. You know yeah, I mean? perfect. I had one thing I was doing once, and I to remind remind myself what the chorus was going to be. It was all we really want to do is poly wally wally doodle. Oh, good, I won't forget that. And then when it came to doing the lyric, where are we going to start with the meaning of the chorus or the verse? So, okay, start the chorus. All we really want to do is poly wally wally doodle all the day. Had a bloody LG. So I got all we really want to do is what we want to do and do it all. Got it. And then work backwards from there. So it's all like you say, it was all about the sound of the thing. It's magic. I enjoy writing for that reason. Talking of which, where you say with Bob, because this is a really interesting relationship, isn't it? Bob Young comes in. Yeah. And I've never heard anyone, a, a tour manager, co-writer. Well, he started that. He's, he, was just, uh, he was just a roadie one night and we were working at, um, must have been Hammersmith or something with, with Gene Pitney. We were tuning up. And Bob was stood in the wings there, and we're tuning up with Anna Lancaster, and us are doing bloody bass players, you know. And that's the first time I remember. And then a few weeks later, he was going to come and work for us or Jethro Tull at the time. And I think we gave him 15 quid a week, and Jethro Tull had offered him 12. And so he came to work with us. And then Rick and I got very much into being around that, me, him, and Bob. We were travelling in the van with Bob, and then Bob's one of those when he starts laughing, goes into silly giggles, you know, bad, bad giggles. And uh, great company. We, I've enjoyed writing with him most of my life. <laughs> it's funny when you can get that older and say that, and it's shit. Is he still yeah. writing with you, by the way? Yeah, occasionally. I just find a very little uh, inspiration to write. There is no, it's the end use. I'm going to start getting negative about end users and what we get per play and so on, all of us. I find it destroying. So the idea to write for what? So if I do it, people say you can do, you know, you can record at home. I, and I quite often say, well, yeah, self-pleasuring is nice, but you like to have sex with somebody else sometimes. And to me, that <laughs> we, when we make records for people, there's something great that you know that they, that they like it. You hear it on radio. Changing their lives. Generation. And you, 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 you can't invent that value, the value that a record has. Mm. You, you can't Head. invent that if, if something's just available to you. Yes, yeah, agree. And yet we've uh, we've kept us alive. We've earned livings, and we're a lifestyle. Perhaps we. I'm deadly grateful for it, but I don't like the idea of it being taken away from me by a third party, as it were. And it, fuck all I can do about so, it. Talking about the writing process, though, because some some songs you did write with Rick, didn't you? One or two, yeah, not a and, lot. No, it was surprised me that when I sort of dug a bit deeper into you guys that that your real writing partnership was was, was you and yeah. Bob, but but your friendship. Well, you had on... shifting, you had shifting partnerships, didn't you, within the band? It seemed to be. But, yeah. Well, you, you it was you know what a band is like. You, well, you know what a band is like. There is that they, they well you start writing, they start saying, oh, well, I want a bit of that. Well, write something. I don't mind. And so in the end, you had to sign right with each person because there's a, you can see your face, there's that 2.2 <laughs> per person. And you go, okay, well, have quality control. And I watched a documentary on Tamla the other week. They actually did have quality control. They sat in a room together. And if it didn't pull that room and the record was made, it didn't go out. Yeah. Whereas in the end, in a band, because it's a democracy or as best it can be, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's 2.2 tracks per person and if he's only brought in two or three tracks they're going to get on the album come hell or high water yeah now you notice that sometimes there's some Queen albums out there and everyone has all four members have got equal mind you all four members wrote yeah, but massive they, but records but they, they just divvy it up they, they don't they, they get rid of all of that tension by just they're all I've read this and heard this before about various acts and I'm very much out there I may be wrong. <laughs> may, I may be wrong. I don't know. But, but it's certainly nice about, PR. It's certainly nice bit of PR. It's nice PR. I heard it about you yeah. too. But then there's the idea that yeah, I heard that as well. Scared, but then someone has got the merchandise. It's show business, everyone. There's money involved. Oh, the right. I'd like to dispel this whole thing. The whole three chords looking for the fourth chord thing. Oh. Yeah. Your songs have loads of chords, and you've got all sorts of incredibly tricky little stuff. There's stuff on your earlier albums. Oh, I think is, he played is, on it. He which pretended. Is prog. Basically, is it really tricky? I stuff? think there was an era when we were doing things that were three separate movements and all this stuff, and there was some very. But after people, when we became successful, people had stopped smoking. The audiences, they, the jokes changed out there, so people were faster. There was more alcohol. There was less people sat on the floor going, "Hey, that was great, man." 
They were all up. So a lot of the long protracted, um, for us anyway, arrangements were kind of out the window. You lost their attention. And you, we all know that you do not lose the audience's attention just so you can play with yourself. And that's self-indulgence. And it's always a balance to me between self-indulgence and... <laughs> And, and giving the audience what it's come to see you for. Like when we say you plundered your back catalogue, but we didn't plunder someone else's, did we, dickhead? Because we use our back catalogue, it's whom we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but in the, and in the 70s, there were quite a few bands that were kind of in your ilk, that, like Eddie and the Hot Rods, and even ACDC who were coming over and doing doing shows. God, give it to ACDC. Someone said to him once, the few albums, what do you say to the critics that say you've made the same album 17 times? He said, fuck off, 18. <laughs> so, it is the same over and over. Wow, each time you hear an ACDC track, what is it about them? That's their magic. And, but how, and did punk, how did you see punk when that happened? Was that a threat or was not, that something? Not very well, to be real honest. There was something about me that we can all be sort of a dickhead on camera. And, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, oh, I, thought, you're, I thought you were about 12. You're about 15. I, I don't know. I don't. And I think Karen made various people exploit that. Let's just be offensive. Yeah, yeah, we're all anti-establishment trying to be establishment. As much as we deny it, we're trying to be... We're trying to grow up, I think, most of us, anyhow, and become... It's like the Stones were anti-establishment. They couldn't be more establishment now, could they? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with all. We're trying to be as much as it's yeah. screaming and screaming. No, all titled, all, all titled, all like, you, know, you, you said, we're, you're in, in in Manchester seeing one of you. That's established that everybody was in. Yeah, yeah. Seeing his kids. But so, musically, it didn't make you think, oh, we need to change what we're doing. Yes, sometimes I remember thinking I went to the guys and um, I'd heard already gone by the Eagles, and the fact that it was people talking just and the bass wasn't going. It was a root fifth bass. Yes, we can still do the melodic top lines. Them ambitious to try and beat the Eagles. But I remember Alice saying, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't. It wasn't manly enough. Well, I, I just didn't understand. And the same when Squeeze did and in the bar, the piano, magical. You can still do that. And um, to me, that would have been a progression. But every time you've tried to progress within that framework, you get slated by certain, your own fans, as it were. Yeah. When we did Rocking yeah. All Over the World, it was one of the biggest, well, it was the biggest record and biggest album at the time, but we lost more fans on that record than we'd ever done yeah. until... I still can't believe that you didn't write that. It's the most oh, quote that song was, ever. That was it's like, the most quote song ever. Grumpy John Fogerty. Cool. Yeah. Isn't there a nice revenge thing that the actual, um, I love that, that, you know, we've all got the gig that we went to that made us go, yeah, that's it, that's what I want to do. And for Paul Weller, it was you lot. It's yeah, he, he knew Ricky, their dads knew each other and he was very, uh, uh, Rick was very instrumental in helping learn to play guitar and the drama. And it took him years and I understand that. The idea to say you were influenced by Quo was, your PR people said, <laughs> Yeah, because it was only, because he just said the who, that was all he would say. Yeah, well, that was hip and that was the mod thing, wasn't it? It made a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, but later on in life, he did actually, which I respect him for, for and I think he's such a, hate to say, he's really, he's done some wonderful things and he has progressed within being Paul Weller. Mm -hmm. Incredible. It's quite unique. But he's, still got, he's still got your Wem amp. Yeah, I know. And these other bits and pieces we got off of Rick, there were these amps we got from German Stramp, I think they were called. It's the one unit. Had a tuner in it, all sorts of stuff in it. And he used that for a while. But uh, yeah, I think that's, it was great that he actually finally came out and said, yeah, I was influenced by quite Because I think that's why he plays the Wem, isn't it? Because he got one off of Rick. Rick, you guys were playing Wems for a Yeah. Have you always played Wems? Yeah, well, we, we had Watkins, Charlie Watkins from Ballam. When Charlie Watkins. Played. When he made the WEM PA systems, they were just, you could add a slave each time. Before that, we were using two marshals plugged together, and if you weren't careful to touch the chassis, the one you get a serious belt, and all that stuff was going on. So Charlie Watkins was the pioneer of the 
Yeah. Brian May, I think, plays well. He, he, invent, he invented monitoring. And, and he was an accordion player who hated rock and roll. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if Brian May plays Wem because of you as well, because he was a massive Quo fan when he was young. When he was, he's got his, I mean, he's still got his 80s, 30s wheels. AC30s, Because yeah. you were AC30s and then you went to Marshall Stack. Oh, yeah, Vox, sorry, I'm getting, I'm saying Wem, and I mean Vox. You're saying, well, I know, I wonder what you were doing. Sorry, can we re-edit this whole section? No, no, no. that stays Okay, in. No. what an idiot <laughs> is what I'm saying. You've, you've led me, I, I meant to say Vox AC30s. Yeah, the AC30s, we still have in a box yeah. backstage. That's where the most front, most front house is a mix of that, a simulator, and the, and the Marshall 4 with 12. But ideally, we all grew up with that. That was the big amp, your AC30. I remember going to Charing Cross Road to Larry McCarry's. And the certain, oh, yes. Yes. Just closed. Finally gone, isn't it? Yeah. And they, everyone got your AC30. They were the amp. It was as loud as you can get, really. If we're just going to have a little gear moment. Sorry, Gary. Can we no. just write the green telly? Is that, do you still have that? Are you still No, have, I sold that, that, sold that a couple of years ago. It would never stay in tune in the end. But it was a, it was one of those, I'd played a, a Gibson before that. Rick had a 335, I had a, a stereo. And um, I swapped it with a guy in Badfinger. And he had this Grimshaw. The Grimshaw, the bridge collapsed. They were in Scotland, they got two Telecasters. I said to the road at the time, which one shall I keep? He said that one was the sunburst. I eventually sanded it down, some wood colour, didn't like that. Painted it black, black. It's a young man, black. And uh, that, that was bloody horrible. Sanded it down again, was painted some furniture at home, painted it green. All those kind of things. And it started to sound rather well. And it was just accidental, purely accidental. Well, the first time I met you was at Psalm Studios doing uh, the Band-Aid record. Oh, yeah, that was a poor season. And I remember you guys made me laugh so much. It was just you and Rick in the corridor holding court for most of the day. It's not all we, we were doing. We were... Um... <laughs> <laughs> that was near, That was handy for the gents, right? It was right near we were, It was weird because I remember saying certain things that Rick and I had and were doing of a passing round and Geldof got very, very upset which because no, there were no drugs. And I thought, well, it's very strange that we all have this sex and drugs and rock and roll, but not on certain days. Well, I, I make your mind up, Bob. But it was a fun day, though. I it was a great day, I thought. It was that. And that was a classic example of we were this other generation and yes. all you guys were this new, this whole new movement. We were very lucky to have been there. But every one of the bands that was the new movement, if you like, you know, whether it's Midjure or Bob or me or, you know, Bono or George, Boy George, Paul, Paul Weller, we all agreed on you. We all were happy you were there. Yeah, I know it's yeah. weird. That's the old, bring the old boys in, them poor old fellas, they're all right. We were very, very pleased to be there and very, uh, but again, like the rest of us, didn't know it was going to turn into what it turned into. I just never had any idea at all. I thought, can't we just get out of this? Do we have to? <laughs> and then, Guy, I've got a sorry, Guy, I have to continue on this because this is like my moment. No, go, no, please, of course, of course. I mean, I spoke to my brother Martin yesterday yeah. who said his greatest memory of being in Spandau Ballet was the day before Live Aid when we went down to the sound check and there weren't many bands there. But you were there, and you were doing the sound check for, uh, for the opening of the show yeah. of Live Aid, mm -hmm. and we stood on. The, no, this can't be the sound check. This must be the day. This is the day. <laughs> we stand on the side of the stage and watch you do the opening of the show. Were you? Did you go to the sound check the day before? Have I got that? Confused I don't. In my I mind? don't remember it, but we must have done thinking no. about it. If so, there was a sound check, we it, would have gone because we weren't getting on. We didn't. I don't think we rehearsed properly. No, it must have been the day. And and there's a, in in our documentary Soul Boys, there's footage of us on the side of the stage watching you do, you're rocking all over the world and singing along to the camera. I mean, what a moment in time! It was it was sheer luck with all of us, I think, because it wasn't until we walked on that Ricky and I realised, oh, this is kind of serious. Or what you must have done, we flew over the. And the gig was totally full up at whatever time it was at 10, 11 in the morning. And everyone was very behaved backstage, had the dressing room for a limited time before and after. The other thing that was funny, everybody had their first phones, like the brick, and everybody had them with them all over the place, but no one's getting any phone calls. So we were all posing around, oh, I got my phone, we went, oh, I'm really cool. But it was quite a phenomenal day, and um, I don't think you can ever... Because of the feeling around at that time, with the the audience definitely felt they were they were part of something, as opposed to that standard quid pro quo we've paid, so we're expecting you to do something. 
they were all part of it, and I thought it was quite unique. And all, all credit to uh, Mouthy Bob Geldof for, for doing it. Because you weren't really functioning as a band at the time. No, not you? And that was Alan's band. last gig, no. wasn't it? it turned, as it turned out. Wasn't, wasn't it wasn't, wasn't pleasant between us at all. But it's weird. Most bands have experienced that. You, 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 we, we're young boys and you're growing up, you're all fighting the world together. Success comes along. Well, it's not just success, you get older. You, be, you have children, you, you grow up, you get into your 30s and such, plus you drift into the next decade. And the, the business is ready to leave you behind. That's all it is. It's all about new chips. Yeah, because I remember what was one of, the, one of the biggest things about that day was that Quo were getting back together because you'd split up two years earlier, hadn't yeah, you? Yeah. And the and and the also uh, who else was was getting there was the a who? Ba- the who the who was, thank you they hadn't played for eight years yeah. or something had they? So and they were the big that's in our mind during that day that they were the big events. Well, that's what Geldof he did say to everybody. I think Crafty said he said to us because we said no twice, and he said if you can get one of you older guys to do it, what older guys gobshite. And if we get you older guys to do it, he said, and get. He's only in his thirties at that time. You're only in your thirties, aren't you? Yeah, but there's no one older. That's the funny thing when you look back to that time. There wasn't anyone older. That's why we could, you know. Yeah. Now yeah. it's very nice of you to point that out, young man. Thank you very much. Sorry, no, you don't know. What I mean, the chat. You know, you yes, know I, I do. I do. It's kind of weird, but it's like Richie in the band now. He's 36, and we call him the young one. Well, he's not, is he? I remember being called a boring old fart standing at the back of the marquee in the studio and the club, and there was a punk band on the Sunsault. And some fella turned around, he must have been 16 or 17, and said, Hug off, Rossi, you boring old fart. Oh, 27. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal, you know. He must have got the 27 and near committed suicide because, oh dear, I'm old now. It's funny we have this thing about age. And did Live Aid, Live Aid change your career? Did it give you an, that extra boost? Because obviously that's what it did with Queen and Dire Straits. And, uh, I don't know. We didn't have product. I remember thinking that was a mistake. But I, as I said, didn't realise till we walked on. And when we walked off, everywhere they were standing going. And there was a different look on people's faces of shit should have gone on first. Because we didn't realise we were going to hit every newsreel around the world. So that was the joy. Of but with, with the, the perfect song, with the perfect yes, song. Yes, but at the time when they Come said, do you want to go? We're going first. Me and Ricky, we're going to be out there by quarter past 12. We'd piss off. We were like, do you get get out? It's a Beach Boys thing. Go on, do your hits, go home. And um, you couldn't go home, of course, but... Um, it was a magical, magical. Yeah, because there's a funny, there's a funny uh, clip of, of uh, Janice Long interviews Rick. And it's only like quarter to one. He's only been off 10 minutes and he's completely off it. Yes. So was I. We were straight away tequila and orange juice, I think, at that time. And, but I managed to um, hang on. I sat there all day. And then Rick went home somewhere. And I saw Bowie at some point And then really late in the day. And he still looked immaculate. He didn't look rat or I said, how do you do that? He went, ah, well, couldn't you tell me? Because he looked, you know, bloody, he looked tremendous. Great, another great guy, yeah. Yeah. So he didn't what, tell you. So he didn't tell you. No. It was. Uh, I, I'm always surprised that you didn't. You were there playing, guy, because you know. You're, I know. I know. I was always I was, forever uh, playing with someone. Really and, no, I, I was in. I was in Ice House, the Australian band at the time. So I, yeah, I was. Out yeah, it was a great, an, an absolutely incredible day. I want to. I just mentioned the friendship thing because, you know, for me there was always this wonderful look that you gave Rick constantly on stage and and looking at it again now I it felt like there was almost a shyness of you as a front man and that Rick was was there was a Rick was the archetypal rock star wasn't he the amount of people he was never quite satisfied nice to stay to the amount of people who want to be you is phenomenal yeah because it was the archetypal blonde and if you think subsequently the amount of heavy metal thrashy blondes that were all this tidied hair up they all wanted to be like Rick and um, mm. but we were so close that I, I kind of we'd look at each other for comfort, I suppose, or security. We were okay, and that was a vestige from way, way back, you know. But it worked for us as a, as fans. For me, because I just saw this, and I remember talking to Martin about this when we were when we were in our twenties, getting Spandau together, 
we were we were saying, oh, you know, I love the way the face is always whispering. You know, Ronnie will whisper in uh, the other Ronnie's ear. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or or Francis and Rick would look at each other and talk. It gave this sense of of a camaraderie that was beyond the music, and that we aspire to a gang. It was. It was definitely that way. It did wane, obviously, but it was like that at the beginning. We were inseparable, um, as I said, to a point of an annoyance to everybody. Did Alan get jealous about that? Because you were Alan's mate originally. You started. Yeah. yeah, I used to say to him that that was, must be an issue because Rick obviously joined at number five and before he's number two. And uh, John Coglin was always sat on, you know, he was, I was seeing like, you know, drummers are like goalkeepers. Where... Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I think. But Rick would do, Rick and I would do that when we were in our early twenties, just to wind people up. I think we would hold hands. We would always sit in the car next to each other. We would always in share rooms together. Everything was always Rick and I were together. But even much much later in life, we would eat like catering. We eat at two o'clock in the afternoon, our evening meal. And we would sit and eat together. And then we'd be lying down up somewhere and have a nap together. And I do miss that. I miss having someone that, that closer friend. I don't really have... Uh, that sounds sad. I don't really have a friend like I had with Rick when, when we were younger. Thank you for doing this. What's the rest of your day now? You've been with the well, Where are we up to? Two o'clock. I'll eat in 35 minutes. Then I shall walk for 10 minutes. And I shall... Is that still your thing? That you, you eat your, is that your pre-show meal that early? Yeah. I'm interested in your routine. 11 o'clock, I'll eat later. I might be a... I like quite a, like a cheese roll. Something like that after the gig. But I shall eat then, walk 10 minutes, sleep 15 maybe, then sound check. But you don't drink as much. I don't drink as much. I can't drink it. I just didn't yeah. drink the stop. I stopped all of that. The only thing I do is smoke a cigarette and I put it out, put it out. And it lasts me. <laughs> if I'm at home, it lasts me from about six o'clock till I go to sleep. And the same on the bus tonight. Sad I'll get. Not at all. Not at all. Far from it. Thank you, I Francis. Think. We don't want you to stop because you've been in my entire life. I mean, the, the absolutely, background yeah. absolutely. of my life is You know what, what's firm. weird? This is two old men talking to me about being a judge. Like, dang, <laughs> three old guys chatting about You still that. make me feel like a kid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I must say, I still I have an absolute memory of being in Woolworths on the Strand and hearing pictures of matchstick men come on the radio and there was that picture there was that poster of you in your tailor-made denims and that and i was looking i was like wow quo that's quo and then they said that was and i heard this record thinking that is amazing who is that and they said that's status quo and i remember my mind being blown that it was the same band yeah yeah, yeah but you must be yeah, like a medication like, for that i was about 12 or something they'll give me some sort of medication go and see somebody honestly <laughs> have a great show tonight thank you good yes. luck with the rest of the tour thank you wow i enjoyed that Oh, I really, really enjoyed that. I'm sorry if I was butting in. I feel really bad about that. I think we were butting in. I think we were both eager fans, weren't we? You know? Very, very eager. I know it's one of those. It's you know, it's one of those things when you, when you get face to face with Francis and you realise it's just an absolute fixture of your life. And he hasn't aged much, has he? He looks the same. He looks in great shape. <laughs> he does. He had, he, had a, he had a touch of the, um, that look of his, the jacket. There was a slight touch of the. I'll take it from here, Sarge. Yeah, <laughs> well, and he did. He took it from there, didn't he? He did take it from there. <laughs> and, uh, and so, thank you to um, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, being yeah, so thanks, supportive. Ben, our producer. Ben, our producer. Thank you, uh, thank you to Status Quo. Yeah, thank you. Really. Long live the Quo. Good night from me. It's good night from them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.